0: Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Hey guys, welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to give you an update on my forthcoming US tour. I've got some great events happening all around the country and I would love to see you there. In Portland, you will be able to see me at Eight Hearts and we have a whole weekend of events lined up for you. That's going to be from Friday the 23rd of June until Monday the 26th of June. So do head to thehealthygut.co forward slash events so that you can sign up for the Portland events. In Seattle, you'll see me at Bastia University and I'll be doing a cooking show with some other fabulous women and we talk all about SIBO and low FODMAPs. In LA, there's going to be a really fun live meetup event where I will be discussing the five key pillars to health, which really transformed my health and is what I coach my SIBO coaching program members on today. In Phoenix, I will be attending the AANP conference. So if you're going to be at that conference, by all means, let me know. I'd love to see you there. And I need your help. I'd love to come to Boston and New York and San Francisco. And I'm looking for some venues to hold live podcast recordings, meetups and book signings. If you have a venue or you know somebody who does, I would love to hear from you. Drop me an email at rebecca at thehealthygut.co and hopefully we can bring an event to your city. Now, if you would like to stay in the loop with these events as they unfold, and information on these events will be coming out very shortly, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash events. You can pop your name and email address down and let me know which city you're interested in attending an event. I would absolutely love to see you there. Anyway, let's get into today's show. Welcome to episode 33 of the Healthy Gut Podcast, and today I'm joined by Alyssa Tate, who is a physiotherapist and naturopath with a special interest in abdominal and pelvic pain disorders, the gut, and urogenital issues. Her initial interest in gut health stemmed from her postgraduate studies in physiotherapy, focusing on constipation and other bowel disorders, such as incontinence and prolapse. She then completed studies in nutritional medicine and naturopathy, and she is currently completing her Master's in Human Nutrition and Functional Medicine. Her management of gastrointestinal tract dysfunction includes the use of visceral mobilisation, a gentle manual therapy that aids the body's ability to release restrictions, and unhealthy compensations that cause pain and dysfunction. In today's episode, we talk about what you can expect from visceral mobilisation treatment and why having any form of abdominal surgery puts you at risk of having adhesions and whether we should be treating our adhesions first or conditions like SIBO first and whether there are some simple things that you can do to assess whether there are any tissue adhesions which may be constricting movement. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Alyssa Tate. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Alyssa Tate. It's wonderful to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. And we're going to be diving deeply into the world of adhesions and, uh, and tissue restrictions, something that I am so interested in and I feel like I've uh, had a big eye-opening experience when I learned about adhesions because I think that that has been a major part of the underlying cause of my SIBO. So I'd love for you to talk um, first off um, to my listeners around how you got into doing this incredible work.
1: Yes. Well, I I had a very similar kind of um, eye-opening experience when I first moved into it. I guess I You know, very early in my career as a physiotherapist, I moved towards the area of pelvis problems, pelvic floor dysfunction in particular, incontinence and prolapse, which is sort of a specialized area of physiotherapy. And so I always knew that I wanted to, you know, work in that area. It's a very, very rewarding, it's a very difficult and awkward and sensitive area. And people really appreciate the help that you can give them. And I guess as I, you know, in the early years, as once I'd done sort of my postgrad qualifications and worked in that area for a while, things just kept getting a little bit more interesting. You know, with everybody you saw, the the plot thickened. You know, you you couldn't sort of um, cut off the boundaries at the symptoms they had, or even the pelvis itself, for that matter. And the first thing that struck me was how the majority of people that I was seeing with pelvic floor dysfunction had bowel problems as well, and the bowel, at least the lower bowel, is definitely a target area of treatment in that specialty field of physiotherapy. But it's it has sort of a um a, a bit of a boundary. You know, we sort of treat the rectum and and nothing else. So, which is really important. And there's a whole lot of stuff that can you know there's a universe of problems that you can experience in terms of the rectum. But um, as I'm sure all your listeners know, you know, the, the, rectum is not, you know, a creature in isolation, you know, it's, it's a uh, part of a continuous um, um, system really that's, you know, starts at the mouth. So, you know, any problem in one area of the gut can affect any other area, and it soon became clear to me that there was a limitation in dealing with that sort of distal end and trying to um, help things just before um, you know the elimination point. And so, I guess I, I, that was when I moved into the nutritional medicine field. I really looked at wanted to look at it from that sort of systemic approach of um, optimizing gut health in that way. So I did all my studies that way, uh, moved out of public health because I felt limited because I couldn't include that within the, the role. It was outside the boundary of being a pelvic floor physiotherapist, so started up private practice where I could basically do what I wanted to do. Um, and then I suppose maybe um, eight years ago or so, um, I became aware of um, visceral, visceral work and visceral manipulation. Um, as part of being a pelvic floor physio, you see people – um, po- Post surgery, a, a lot of gynecological surgery, um, abdominal surgery. So this is something that we're used to doing rehab with. Um, but I guess even in even when you're working as a um, physical therapist, looking at mechanical limitations, so looking at um, you know um, a sort of musculoskeletal approach, the organs never really come into it. You know, we think about joints we think about muscles. Those are bread and butter. And then, you know, um, if you've done extra study, you might be thinking more about nerves as well. And you might be thinking about um, impulse transmission and central nervous system function and um, motor control and all those sorts of things. But there was sort of this big gap, you know, where the, it was though so the organs didn't exist and that they didn't influence anything. And I started doing some training with some, some great practitioners who were aware of the links between different um, different tissues of the body, I guess. So you might call it more of an osteopathic approach. A lot of osteopaths will very naturally have that that approach, but it's a little bit different to how we see things as as physios. And so I moved into the area of myofascial release. Um, you know, lighter touch techniques like connective tissue mobilization, which do have a lot to do with scar and adhesions and you know tissue restrictions in general. So that was sort of how I developed my hands-on skills. Um, And then because I'm a pelvic floor physio, I was applying that internally. So I would do vaginal and rectal treatment um, using all of those techniques. And then I became aware of visceral manipulation. And it was just like a, you know, being struck by lightning. I mean, why hadn't I realized before that problems in connective tissue related to organs could actually have such a far-reaching effect on the body and I mean I guess to some degree you do realize this as a clinician you know you're working with people who've had surgery and you can see that the little bit of pelvic floor rehab or retraining or bowel retraining is not going to cut the mustard you know you can see that there's their uh, abdomen is just you know crisscrossed with scars from, you know, last year's to their 30-year-old appendicectomy before they had laparoscopic surgery, all these kinds of things. So I guess you you experience this and you can, you can sort of see, okay, these are the complicated cases. And that's what really led me to um, pursue that. So I was um, – at the time, there was no such training available in Australia, and it's still pretty thin on the ground. So I did my research, and I had eventually – um, track down the institute that does most of the training for this, which is the Baral Institute, um, originated out of France. And they did most of their training in the U.S. and England and some countries in Europe. But they actually planned a trip to, I think it was Singapore. So I was all set for that, had my flights, you know, had it all organized. And they then announced that they were coming to Australia um, about nine months later. (laughs) So I um, hung on as hard as it was, canceled that trip and waited. And they came out and they actually did, I think they did two four day courses, very intensive back to back. And then they came back about six or nine months later and did the third level. So the first two were about abdomen. So it was basically immersing yourself in all of the soft tissue of the abdomen for eight days. And then the pelvis came later. And since then, I've done internal pelvis and um, various other Sorts of things, Um, but yeah. So I I remember sitting in on my first day of that course as an experienced manual therapist in the area of pelvis, but just feeling like I'd struck gold. I was like, "How come everyone else isn't doing this?" And I was so excited, I could barely sleep for four days. I was on such a high with it. it. It was something that that really transformed my practice. And once I introduced it to my practice and started using it with people. It was I just couldn't go back and I still every day, uh, you know, working in the field of chronic abdominal and pelvic pain, I just asked myself how I could do it without visceral, visceral mobilization. Um, just to comment on that, you know, the, tech, the, the official name is visceral manipulation, um, but I've always thought that that sounds a bit sort of manipulative, you know, you know people don't like to be manipulated. So, um, you know, uh, it, we tend to use the softer term visceral mobilization. And um, it sounds like you're just rattling people's organs around, and, and you know, winding them all around each other. It, it does sound a bit sort of um, over the top. So we like to explain it as a kind of um, uh, organ-specific um, myofascial technique, or organ-specific connective tissue release.
0: Hmm, it's interesting to hear that uh, that description of. Um Uh, yeah myofascial release looking at an organ and it's something that I or myself have felt like I was struck by lightning um, when I actually heard Larry Wern talk at the SIBO symposium in June of 2016 and he was there presenting um, it was I think he was the final speaker actually of the two-day event talking about adhesions.
1: Wow I think that woke everybody up though.
0: Well, it woke me up for sure. I was almost in tears because I felt like it was the biggest light bulb kind of being struck by lightning moment for Mm -hmm. me because in all of my years of having abdominal surgeries, not one surgeon had ever told me that there was a risk of adhesions. And it it just gave so much clarity Mm -hmm. as to why I'd had such chronic um, digestive Problems. And I, you know, I've got these scars. Like you say, I'm crisscrossed with scars. And uh, no wonder (laughs) I had all these problems. And we had the great pleasure of having Larry and Belinda Wern join the Healthy Gut podcast on episode 25. And they do a great job of explaining what adhesions are. Um, And if anybody hasn't listened to that episode, I do recommend that they go back and listen to that. And then they come back to this episode and and listen to Alyssa. Because Alyssa and I, um, we're going to sort of go more deeply today into and talk about some other elements around adhesions. visceral visceral manipulation or mobilisation and also adhesions. One thing I'm thinking about as you've been talking is just around um, the fact that you've done so much work around the pelvic floor. And I think most people kind of know they've heard of the term pelvic floor, but how would one know if they have an issue with their pelvic floor?
1: (laughs) That's a great question because it's another thing that you don't really get told much about. You know, your doctor won't tend to talk to you about it. You might even have gynecological surgery. And if you're, you know, not one of the the lucky ones, your surgeon won't refer you. So you wouldn't know whether, you know, if you do experience symptoms that there can be help for that. So I guess um, thinking about somebody who hasn't had surgery in that area There's a few different categories, I guess, you can class it into. There's the control issues, uh, so that would be bladder and bowel control broadly, and these might be things like um, some leakage when you cough or sneeze or jump or run or shout, Um, and that might be even what some people now call LBL or light bladder leakage, Um, sometimes I suppose dismissing it to a degree that it's that it's no big deal, but it technically that is a pelvic floor problem when, when that is the pelvic floor not, not functioning or not doing its job correctly when you experience that. You might have urgency issues, and that could be bladder urgency where you get the sense that you're not going to make it to the toilet on time, usually accompanied with a feeling of you know stress or panic. It's not the same as just having a full bladder or a strong urge to go. It's a real sense of, uh-oh, I'm not going to make it in time. Um, you can also have the same with the bowels. So you can have, um, um, you know, a bowel urge where you have a close call or you feel like you're not going to make it, or you do actually lose control before you get there. Um, and that, that I suppose is the, the issues that we'd call, um, storage issues. That's the storage category. And then you've got the voiding issues category. And this is again, both bladder and bowel. So, um, anything where you actually have to think about the emptying and it doesn't just happen without you paying attention to it. Things like um, there being a pause before the flow starts. So you, you know you need to go, you sit down, but you have to wait for it. You might have to force it. Um, once it starts, it might just be a trickle or it might stop and start, or you might feel like you haven't emptied your bladder completely. Or you might go to stand up off the toilet and find that you leak a little bit as you go to stand, um, and you, that tells you that it hasn't emptied completely similar sorts of things with the bowel where you can know you have the urge to go, but you sit down and it feels like it's right there, but it just won't come out. So it feels like it's getting stuck and it might feel like it's getting stuck in a pocket. You might, some people might have the urge to actually insert their finger into their vagina and push back on the wall and find that actually helps it come out, um, which we call digital, digital assistance, Or, or, um, they might, try to support that spot between the vagina and the anus called the perineum and that gives it some support to empty. Um, these kinds of things, uh, that would be your voiding um, you know, category. Um, then you might have your prolapse symptoms. So this is uh, could be anything as extreme as a bulge or um, a feeling like something's coming out of the vagina or rectum, a feeling of um, a, a golf ball between the legs, um, a feeling of needing to push something back in, or something as mild as a feeling of heaviness or dragging or slight discomfort, um, especially with a lot of exercise or heavy lifting or standing. So that's sort of the support category or the prolapse category. And then the, the, um, the last major category would be the pain category. So any pain at all related to bladder, bowel, vagina, um, having sex, um, going to the toilets, not, you know, when you're emptying your bladder. Um, Things like uh, very specific things like a um, sharp or um, red hot poker type of feeling in the back passage, people describe it as, which is known as proctalgia fugax, which is a spasm of the anal muscles. Um, That's quite a specific one. Um, And then you might have, you know, what they sometimes call pelvic floor myalgia or levator ani syndrome, where you just feel like something's there. It's like something's there that shouldn't be. Um, so any of those can be a sign that you have problems with your pelvic floor.
0: And is it more women than men, um, experiencing these things or is it, um, sort of more equal?
1: Sure. So, um, the, uh, the control side of things is definitely more women. So it's, you know, more, it's kind of like a one in three, um, stat that's often quoted. I think, think that men may be one in 10, um, but don't quote me. So, you know, it's more than you'd think with men. Um, with men, it tends to come later in life. With women, it can be at any time, but especially if they've had children. Um, but, you know, I've seen many young men with issues. And the thing that, you know, I suppose might some people might relate to that, you're, that are listening today is if there are gut problems, then that's much more likely to be a, a I guess a perpetuating factor for a bowel problem in terms of a control problem. So, you know, some of your listeners might experience um, episodic diarrhea or even chronic diarrhea. And as soon as you have, um, you know, that looseness of the stools, it's very, very difficult to have complete control. So, um, you know, a lot of people will relate to that. I guess you might have listeners who have things like inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease or what have you, and have had surgery for that and have um, scars related to that. Um, There might even be people who've had, um, you know, radiation treatment for cancer and that um, causes uh, um, extensive scarring within the abdomen and pelvis is one of the major, you know, causes of major adhesions. And that certainly will affect people's um, control, their ability to hang on, both the bladder and bowel. Um, But getting back to your question about um, men versus women, yeah, it definitely affects both. And the pain issue affects both. So there are certain backgrounds or triggers to the pain that we might um, talk about, but um, men aren't exempt. I certainly see uh, men with persistent pelvic pain.
0: I remember you talking at the SIBO summit in um, Australia in October of 2016 and, and I had a bit of a light bulb moment when you were talking and it was when you talked about having that feeling of having a red hot poker up the bum mm. and no one had ever talked to me about that before. I'd never heard anybody talk about that. But when you to- when you said that and you described that feeling, I, I realised that I had felt that many times during my life. Mm-hmm. and. No one, no medical professional has ever said to me, now, Rebecca, do you ever experience a red hot poker <laughs> up your bottom? <laughs> um, but it finally gave me a bit of an answer as to, oh, I do experience that. Yeah. Um, and and interestingly, I don't, I haven't experienced it since clearing SIBO, but I used to get it quite oh, fantastic. a lot. Mm. Yeah. And listening to you talking about a lot of these things that can happen with pelvic floor issues, they're so... The symptoms are so interlinked with um, symptoms people would associate with SIBO. Yes. and I, I'm sure many of my listeners are going, "I have got that. I I experience that." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And what's the approach? I mean, should you be looking at the pelvic floor and adhesions before you start treating SIBO or should you be treating SIBO and then looking at these things? Like, do you are you, um, you know, choosing one over the other when you're – and I know obviously you are specializing in visceral manipulation or, or mobilization, uh, so you'll probably tell me that's what you focus with first.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I think it's a great question because there are – Many ways to approach different conditions, and there are a lot of wonderfully trained health professionals out there from different backgrounds who may be the one that can, I guess, influence enough in your system for you to reach that tipping point where that recovery really ensues. So, um, there, you know, sometimes you hear about all these different facets, think, Oh, no, I've got to do that and that and that. Well, maybe if the way you've started hasn't worked yet. I don't think there's any um, sort of standard order of things, but it's, you know, using the example of that Proctalgia fugax or that classic red-hot poker-up-the-bum feeling, which is exactly what people say to you over and over again. Um, if we take the, um, the the sort of classic approach, uh, I guess the the standard approach... Um, if you've got a good referring doctor, is to refer you to a pelvic floor physiotherapist, and, and lots of my colleagues will be able to help people completely resolve that symptom by doing pelvic floor physiotherapy. Now, that may and usually does include some internal release work, but um, you know that that. That kind of um, idea, you know, sends a lot of people sort of running towards the hills. So um, I just want to reassure people that um, it will normally not start that way. And uh, normally, there's a lot of muscle control stuff that needs to happen first, and a lot of breathing, um, breathing control, breathing techniques. Um, because if you have if you have somebody work on you physically, and I am a huge believer in manual therapy. You know, I think that at times there's no substitute for manual therapy. But if you, let's take the example of, I don't know, um, chronic headaches that are caused by postural problems. You can go to the massage therapist and they can do a great job ironing out all those knots and you can have relief at least temporarily. But if you're still in that bad habit of, of sitting poorly, of having bad posture, of bunching up muscles that aren't needed for the job regularly, then you're just going to keep that problem going. So I think that, um, while there's no one answer, I do think that it is important to have an element of active approach within any approach that's taken, and that might be active physically in terms of um, uh, g- general general ex- exercise as well as specific therapeutic exercise that that you know a well trained uh, person has been able to to give you re- related to your your issue. Um, Or it might be actively, you know, working on obviously, um, you know, emotional or psychological influences that that cause your body to do certain things. So I I think that's my one little rule is there needs to be an active approach because occasionally there is um, the tendency for someone to want someone to just work on them. And that's all. But having said all that, just as a bit of a caveat, I think that the manual therapy is so important, and I have seen um, people who have had proctalgia fugax who haven't, um, who even with the classic pelvic floor muscle physical therapy haven't managed to resolve that. And this is where the visceral comes in. I can think of a uh, an, an example in my mind of a, a brilliant physio who actually referred her patient to me who had Proctalgia fugax, um, and it was actually visceral work that made a difference. It's interesting that you experienced that when you had SIBO and once the SIBO was resolved, you didn't, and it just shows us what an overlap there is between the functioning of an organ and its structure or its sort of mechanical limitations, if you like. So there are times when restrictions Around the lower bowel can actually promote that muscular spasm. So once those those restrictions are less influential through some manual therapy, um, then that that can be the the thing that allows you to reach the tipping point and and not um, not have that problem persist. What I try to explain to people I see is, and this is sort of the osteopathic approach. We've all, we're all full of imbalances. You know, we're all full of asymmetry. There is no kind of You know, perfectly aligned body, mirror image right and left. We've all got um, issues and we don't need perfection to function well. Things just need to be good enough. The body is very intelligent and has many layers of compensation that can be made. The longer problems go back and the more severe those problems, the more compensations are used up by the body, if that makes sense. So sometimes people will say, you know, we do pretty thorough questioning of their history and we'll find that they had a I ask people if they ever had a really memorable fall on the bottom. Um, and, and I mean, you know, it's really standard. We've all fallen on our bottom, but something memorable. They couldn't couldn't walk. Uh, you know, there was a lot of pain. And people will tell me, oh, well, I fell out of a tree when I was 12 and landed my bottom, and I was too embarrassed to tell mom. And so I never, you know, they sort of tell the story. And there's often actually an emotional tie to it as well, which is another Unfortunately, a great recipe for persistent pain is when there is uh, injury, um, and there is an emotional element to that that sort of isn't isn't resolved. Um, and and they'll say, oh, but that was so long ago. But that can be, you know, that that can be relevant. They 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 may have resolved that initial pain, and they went for years without problems, and then they had, let's say, um, you know. Um, uh, some sort of procedure done or they they went through, um, you know, intrauterine implantation or or some other kind of um, assisted reproductive sort of technique. Um, And that was very emotional. And then, you know, a third thing happened and you can just see the layers of things build up. So I think it doesn't really matter what order you do things. um, Because if it's like, if there's, if the right domino is knocked over, then it'll knock over enough other dominoes. And once that happens, your body is able to clear enough of its own problems. The problem is when sometimes we're working on the peripheral dominoes, you know, that don't actually um, knock over that many more dominoes. And and you judge that for yourself, because if you've persisted with an approach for a period of time, and it, and it hasn't been working, it's time to, time to try something else. Um, I think really this is You know, the situation of um, gut issues is just classic requirement for a really broad multidisciplinary approach. And I think that um, that includes, you know, nutritional medicine, functional medicine, naturopathy, whatever you would like to to call it. And includes specific manual therapy, you know, the visceral approach. Uh, myofascial technique or connective tissue mobilization, which is, is so, so important for scars. It's something that, that um, people need to know about, about before and after surgery. Um, but I think that, you know, there there just needs to be um, a, a, whole, a whole bunch of different influences in the picture so that you can find out what works for you.
0: And it's interesting when you think about scars, the only thing I ever worried about are post- Um, operations was I hope my scar isn't too visible (laughs) and I never thought about what was happening internally and it's interesting um when you talk about you know choosing what feels right for you at, at the moment and and I had no knowledge of adhesions at all when I first commenced this um this path of recovering from SIBO and I now look at it as it's my next step in this mm. in this pathway towards um, optimal health and um, and I'm very lucky that SIBO hasn't returned for me and I'm very interested to uh, my my project for this year is finding a practitioner that um, uh, who's either based in Melbourne or <laughs> coming up yeah. to see you uh, who can who can um, firstly assess whether I do have adhesive. and and then work with me on them because I do wonder whether it's just literally a matter of time until something like SIBO returns given that I suspect I've got adhesions but like you say it's about choosing it's about about doing what you can at that moment in time my SIBO treatment worked really well Mm. for me at that time um so there was no need for me to um at that time to to look further because it was working. And I also had quite a lot of treatment fatigue and testing fatigue when Mm -hmm. I came through the other side. And it's been really pleasant just having a little pause, um, becoming a lot more knowledgeable and educated and and formulating my next steps. Um, And I think that's totally fine for people as well. that They just get so fatigued from looking for solutions. And
1: that's the trouble when you're dealing with something that's chronic, you know, or that's, um, you know, complex, there is, it's a real search, you know, it's a, um, it's a sort of a continued, continued journey. And in that search, you'll hear about a lot of things and there can be a, um, a lot of, I guess, um, fear and worry and anxiety that builds up around what could happen, which sometimes, you know, itself can impact negatively on, um, on your, you know, progress as well. And so I think I like to try to keep very um, open-minded about this. I think that um, it will prove for itself if it's beneficial for a person. What we know from research very strongly, like it's very, very solid research, is that if you have had a previous case of small bowel obstruction and you have adhesions, then that is a huge risk factor for a, another case of small bowel obstruction. Um, so that's where all the research is on adhesions. And that's where the interest lies in research because small obst- bowel obstruction is um, is life-threatening. You know, it's such a serious a medical emergency. So there's always going to be a lot more research on stuff that, you know, that is um, potentially fatal. Um, so we know that in those situations, it would go without saying that the person, you know, should seek out, and often they'll have had, um, you know, adhesiolysis. They'll have had surgical treatment to try to reduce that risk. But always, visceral should go with that. When we come to SIBO, um, it makes sense, and there are links. Um, I think that there, you know, there is a lot of theory around it, and the theory is around the, the potential impact of adhesions on motility, which is. You know, seen to be the underlying issue that causes uh, SIBO to recur is a small intestinal motility issue. So it's a very powerful technique for um, for triggering or for stimulating motility of the small intestine. Um, So it 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 makes sense to use it. Uh, I think if if there are if there is surgery, if there's not a surgical risk. Then it's more theoretical, and I've seen it work for some, and I think the jury is, is still out overall in other situations. But if there is a surgical history, well, we know you've spoken to to Larry and Belinda Wern, and they explained it so well. If you have surgery, you have adhesions that goes together, and I think it's important to understand the difference between what we are talking about with adhesions versus what the doctors sometimes talk about. I get a lot of patients who come and see me and they say, the doctor said there's no adhesions, but they have a scar. Therefore, of course they have adhesions. Adhesions are part and parcel of that uh, inflammatory response and that tissue recovery as, as um, Larry and Belinda explained. So what they mean when they say that is that from their clinical judgment, Uh, they don't believe that adhesions are promoting the symptoms that the person's having. Um, And I think that, you know, surgeons and doctors are, are used to gross adhesions. And if you look into the technical aspect of adhesions, you'll see that there's grading systems, which are really fascinating, actually, to to look at the pictures, and, you know, probably fairly easy to Google, or though that could be a little bit scary. You know, I think you've got sort of the grade one to four. And without going into detail, if you can imagine the grade one adhesions are like fine spider's web, that's what it looks like. You know, it's obviously tougher than spider's web, but but that's what it looks like is fine threads joining um, two areas of tissue that shouldn't necessarily be joined. And then you've got the grade four ones, which are such thick fibrous bands. You can see blood vessels in them. They've actually grown into almost like a miniature organ of of their own, and they are really difficult to divide, and they're going to be much less responsive to manual therapy as well. So I think when people talk about, um, do I have adhesions? Do I not? We've all got adhesions if we've had surgery, but the critical question is, are they affecting function? And this is where we have to be really aware of the difference between identifying something in structure versus its impact on function. And this goes for everything. You know, we we all know people who um, have an X-ray uh, for, you know, some some reason maybe they've got mild mild back pain and they've got you know they're sort of riddled with arthritis and they've got such um structurally structural deformity that the doctor can barely believe that they can get through their day but they've actually just got mild pain and that's um that that is something important to remember I don't want your your listeners to panic because they know they're counting the surgery that they've had. They think, oh my gosh, I must be, you know, um, in a terribly bad way. Sure, they'll probably have a lot of adhesions, um, but how much is it limiting their function? And that's why when I see people, I like to try to include some kind of functional assessment. Now, that's partly what they tell me about what they can and can't do, and when they experience pain and what makes it worse. Um, So, you know, that's classic for people with problematic adhesions: is that physical activity will either bring it on or make it worse. Um, So that's you know goes without saying. And then when we look at their physical movement, we're looking at the movements that we're looking at movements that are limited, and that sort of um, you know. It makes, I think, logical sense once you understand really how connective tissue works, that if you have adhesions, abdominal adhesions, then it is going to, it is going to impact on your movement. So um, I know that Larry and Belinda talked about spinal extension. That's probably the most classic one is we get people to bend back. And I'm interested in how far they can go. But of course, I don't know how far they used to be able to go. So what I'm more interested in is what they feel when they bend back, especially what they feel anteriorly at the front, at you know, in their tummy. Um, and I will do that before and after treatment. So we will do uh, we will do a little, little pre-test. Um, that's not the only one. We'll do various mobility assessments and you know, functional tests. And we'll do those after the, the short treatment as well. And it's amazing how often they will feel a difference already just from the one treatment and that's showing that um, their function is likely to be improved, not just that we're um, you know affecting the structure. So spinal extension is a classic one bending back um, and the other really classic one is rotation. So you know you'll have a lot of people who can twist better to one side than the other and of course that's affected by your you know thoracic spine but it's amazing how much it's affected by your um, visceral connective tissue attachments as well. and you know we can release we can do some release work and we can improve that rotation without touching the back. Um, So, you know, that's something that that we see all the time. So I guess, you know, something that might make it a little bit more visual for your listeners, there's two, I guess there's a couple of analogies that I like to use, and one might make sense more than the other. The first one is your tummy, your abdomen being like a bowl full of jelly, and, you know, it's full of fluid, um, and that fluid is gluggy. You know, it's not necessarily like a, um, like, cordial, you know, it's more like a soup. And um, so that in that bowl of jelly are sitting all different shapes and sizes of fruit. And each piece of fruit is cling wrapped individually. So all the pieces of fruit are your organs in different sizes. And the cling wrap is what's called the visceral peritoneum, which is the connective tissue um, wrapping, I guess, that covers each organ. And then you've got Connecting um, all of that fruit in that bowl of jelly, you've you've basically got a bag. Um, let's say a, a sort of a sticky plastic bag that surrounds it, and that's called your parietal peritoneum. So that's the um, connective tissue that basically stops your organs from, you know, your your um, I don't know your 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 uh, colon from ending up crossing to the other side. Is it's attached via um, peritoneum. So you have, um, you know, you have this, this sort of situation and if you have surgery or every time you have surgery, there are layers of bags that your, um, you know, bowl of fruit sits in and all those layers get little knots in them, a little bit like those orange onion bags or orange bags that you get um, fruit you know, with freedom from the supermarket, there's a little knot every time you get those adhesions, uh, that surgery, I should say. And they may be minor. So a classic one would be, you know, an episiotomy scar. You know, a woman's had an episiotomy um, as a part of uh, giving birth, and it seems like just a small thing. It may not be a big deal. But if she's also had her appendix out, you know, um, especially before there was laparoscopic surgery, um, let's say you've now got two pulls in different directions, you got a bit of a tug of war going on. And then maybe she has her hysterectomy. And that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, Maybe she has, um, you know, some, maybe she has hysterectomy, and she develops SIBO, you know, because of all these abdominal adhesions. So, uh, you know, that's, that's one, way you can sort of see that as a visual a simpler way is just to see it all as a big spider's web so it's like a three-dimensional cobweb but much stronger with thousands of strands in every direction and all your um, organs are like you know giant flies (laughs) I guess in the cobweb so uh, if your um, cobweb is being pulled one way it will pull all flies in that direction you know they will all be sort of um, strained in that direction and once there's more than one pull there's a major tug of war going on and this might lead to symptoms of abdominal pain, it could be chronic it could be there all the time or it could be episodic, you know you could get stabs or grabs that's a classic one, is you know you get a grab of pain when you go to move or when you bend in a funny way um, or you could get something that isn't pain you could get abdominal bloating difficulty emptying the bowels um, you know, you could get um, just a general um, lack of mobility. There's, you, could, you could get reflux. There's all kinds of symptoms you could develop. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify.
0: It's interesting, I, uh, still to this day, I don't get those red hot poker um, sensations anymore, but I find that if I'm wearing really constricted clothing, so I'm kind of restricted myself, and I move quickly in a direction, I'll get those grabs and pulls and sort of sharp stabs in my abdominal area, which is one of the reasons why I feel quite confident that I've got some abdu- some adhesion issues and um, and that still lasts that still happens to me it actually happened only just recently um, although it hadn't happened for a while but that is something that I still experience despite the fact that the SIbo has gone and and it I'm it would be interesting to hear from the listeners if uh, you know do write in to me and uh, and let me know whether you get those grabs and pulls and stabs of pain just randomly when you know doesn't feel like there should be a Stab or a pull happening because <laughs> I would imagine plenty of people feel them. And we talked um, when I was interviewing Larry and Belinda Wern. We did talk about the uh, about their treatment approach. Um, you know, from external, so on top of the skin. But I'd like to talk to you, Alyssa, about internal treatment. Mm. And I did laugh when you were talking about people wanting to run to the, for the door when they hear about a vaginal or rectal yes. uh, treatment. But I think it's important to understand how that works and how that can also be um, very beneficial yeah. for um, working with these tissue restrictions.
1: So, the first thing to say is that I actually rarely do that on the first treatment. There's so much assessment to be done um, that that's often jumping the gun. The, the only time that I would do that is if somebody's had a lot of treatment before and they've had long term issues and they are super keen to get right to it and they're like, I'll do anything, <laughs> you know, do what you need to do. And, and we do, you know, we can, uh, we have enough time to, to do that. Um, this is. Um, I guess another couple of interesting things might ex- people might experience related to adhesions is tailbone pain and also pain passing a bowel motion, which is, you know, common with endometriosis, common with surgical adhesions. And these are classic indicators for um, internal, internal treatment. So I think that, um, you know, the, the first thing is that the... Vagina, the rectum—you know—all these areas—they're connected to the rest of the body, which is, you know, connected to a person. So, you know, we're never kind of treating those areas in isolation. And I would always treat. Uh, so, for example, um, if we're looking at uh, rectal treatment for a tailbone, I would always treat the sacrum first. Look and look and treat the sacrum and pelvis first. Um, obviously, men don't have a choice. You know, they're they're stuck with rectal exam. Women do have a choice. And sometimes one is more likely to be effective than the other. It's um, so there's various you know we'll discuss what might be better. But you know uh, if the person is um, you know has an expression on their face of don't even think about it when I talk about rectal exams. Of course we're not gonna we're not gonna go that way. We'll do as much as we can. There's a lot that can be done externally. I'm talking about vaginal and rectal treatment. But what is also a really important part is actually just perineal treatment sitting bone treatment um pubic bone treatment these are all areas that your you know your your local massage therapist is not going to treat you know it's and that's exactly how it should be um so people sometimes think we're going to dive into doing internal exams straight away, but there are situations where there is so much wonderful, relieving work that can be done for the person starting externally, but you know, in some of these more intimate areas and, you know, we do our absolute best to minimize that sense of, you know, um, uncomfortableness about it with the right draping with, you know, um, with the person being in charge, all those sorts of things. But, Basically, we might start with connective tissue mobilization. And I want to mention that because something you said really made me think of that. This this classic um, clothing triggered symptom. Some people have a complete intolerance to wearing tight clothing. Um, one lady I see um, as an intolerance to wearing normal underwear. So she has very, very baggy um, underwear that has lost her elastic has lost its elastic and these kinds of things when the skin actually either feels too sensitive to this stuff or it triggers a symptom that you have, like you mentioned, um, we can do a lot of very superficial work that is not necessarily the internal stuff yet. And connective tissue mobilization is an old, like a very old technique that was, um, really sort of publicized by Elizabeth Dicke, I think was her name. She's a German physical therapist. Um, and it's not part of standard Physiotherapy training um, at all, not in Australia anyway. And it's not really part of massage training either. So I traveled overseas to learn it and now I find it so valuable. And I want to mention it to your listeners because they can do it for themselves as well. So this is a classic technique that should be done actually um, post surgery. Um, So I just want to preface this, of course, by saying work with a Qualified health professional, don't take anything I say as gospel. Um, This is general advice. But in theory, if you've had good healing, then certainly by the six-week point and probably before, but check with your health professional, um, you should be doing manual therapy on your own scar. You should be uh, moving it. You should be pulling on it. You should be lifting it. You should be squishing it. And that doesn't matter where on your body it is. And that's the general principle of what connective tissue mobilization is and what I might start with when I'm going to do um, internal work with people. There's a whole bunch of muscles that are kind of the tip of the iceberg to the pelvis. So, um, you know, we might start with um, gentle myofascial release. And the principle of myofascial release is we apply pressure until there's a sense of tissue restriction or the person feels discomfort, whichever comes first. So while I'm feeling for tissue restriction, and this is the case for whether I'm doing my fascial technique or visceral work or whatever, I'm feeling for what I feel, but I'm most interested in what you're feeling as the patient. And if you, there are situations where I haven't felt much tissue restriction yet, but you're in a lot of discomfort um, or you're in some discomfort and we want to keep that. I think um, Larry and Belinda were talking about that as well. You know, we might keep it at five out of 10 or below, depending on the person's anxiety level. Um, so, but yeah, we're certainly not going to go into the stratosphere with that and we wait for it to ease. And then that is the body allowing you to go further. And this is the same principle with visceral work as well. When we're working in the, uh, whether through the tummy or whether through the pelvis is the body will tell us when it's okay to continue. And, you know, you will, you will express it to us as, as the patient as well. So, um, we might start with that kind of external work and it's much more, uh, it's a very, it's a very gentle and respectful way of working. And I try to encourage people when they're doing their own release work as well, to be gentle and respectful with their body, but to be, to be firm, to be insistent, you know, you don't want, th- this needs to change. You don't want things to keep going on how they are. You want to train your system to, to tra- to change, to get to the next level. So talking about, um, internal release, uh, you know, sort of work now, um, Many women are, are used to this, actually, from having internal exams, having pap smears. No, nobody finds it fun, but it's surprising how often people say, oh, that was nowhere near as bad as I expected. Or, gosh, I didn't actually feel that. Normally, it's so painful when I you know, see the doctor or whatever. And that's what a manual therapist is trained to do, is minimize non-essential pain. you know, And then there may be a need to provoke discomfort in order to get tissue change and functional change, but you're always in, tr- in charge of that. So uh, it's a very stepwise approach, and we're looking at um, muscle, and we're looking at mobility of internal organs. So I'm looking looking for how does your rectum, how does it, how does it like to move? Does it mind moving to the left? Does it not like moving to the right? You know, um, it should be able to freely move both sides. Um, so should the cervix. Um, so should the bladder. Um, so yeah, that's the general principle of, of how that works. I'll make a comment about rectal treatment because when I did my postgraduate tre- uh, um, training and I found out that we needed to practice rectal exams on each other, I was horrified. I, I almost wanted to just walk out and, and, just, you know, dismiss the idea of, of getting my postgrad training, you know, momentarily, of course. Um, but, uh, so I, I want people to, um, to understand how sensitive we are when we're doing this and also to to, to be prepared that even though it's awkward, you know, it's um, not something you, you you want done for fun, it's um it's a very, very um life changing technique for some people. Um it does have the strange and and unusual side effect while you're having it done of making you feel like you're going to pass a bowel motion. And I always tell people that because that's a very distressing feeling when you feel like, uh Oh, what, you know, am I going to be able to control this? But that's normal because the, that um, pressure is stimulating the mucosa um, of the bowel. So that's, that's, it can feel like that a little bit with movement. Um, But it is a really um, fantastic technique. And if you have had problems with pain with passing a bowel motion Incomplete emptying, feeling tailbone pain, um, what feels like rectal pain, or that proctalgia fugax I described before—it um, can be trans—you know—transformative for those types of symptoms.
0: Mm, definitely. And what about where people use um, devices to help them? Let's say we're talking about the people that have difficulty clearing their bowels and um, constipation is so common for people with SIBO um, and they use, you know, one of those stools that you can put at your toilet seat mm-hmm. to help lift your legs. And, and um, do you, are those things good to use uh, And in order to help this Um, you know, perhaps any of these restrictions that are happening in the system? Sure.
1: You know, anything that makes uh, the bowels empty with more ease and less strain is a good thing. So that might be the footstool. Um, Sometimes you have to be careful of the height of the footstool. Sometimes putting it too high can tilt your pelvis back and make the emptying a bit more difficult, especially if you have what's called a rectocele, which is a uh, a, a bulge of the back wall of the vagina forward, which is actually the, the rectum falling forward towards the vagina, um, that, that may aggravate that symptom. So you don't want to do anything just based on theory, but if it works for you to have your feet elevated on a stool, fantastic. There's a lot of great um, pieces, you know, types of equipment um, for that, or it could be as simple as a low footstool from, from the supermarket. Um, there are also little tools, little gadgets that you can use. Just while I'm talking about rectocele, which is um, looks uh, sort of uncannily like a shoehorn, and you very gently—this is women only—you very gently insert it into the vagina, and it allows the back wall to remain straight instead of bulging or herniating forward, if you like, towards the vagina. So the tunnel is straight, the passage is straight for you, you to be able to pass the bowel motion. Um, this is a, a, a nifty. Um, nifty little tool that I can give you the link to after. I can't recall the name of it. Um, But equally effectively, um, some women actually do gently insert their thumb into the vagina and apply pressure back onto the wall as well. And if that stops them from straining and pushing, then that's, that's going to be a good thing.
0: I had never heard of that tool, and that sounds very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and I look forward to sharing that link uh, in the show notes with the listeners. Um, some advice for the listeners around, let's say somebody has surgery coming up. Um, do you have any advice for them or what they can do prior to, um, to any surgical intervention? Yes,
1: great question. Um, if you're already working with a, a good osteopath, or um, a, a good physio, um, then they will be trying to optimize your mobility on all levels beforehand. Um, so that will be through the pelvic joints, through the um, you know your your spine, your spinal joints. Um, hopefully, viscerally as well, especially if you've had any previous surgery, um, but certainly doing some mobility work. If you don't have access to that, uh, you know, some gentle, starting some gentle yoga and progressing through that with a, with a good teacher before you um, get to your surgery um, would be a good idea. Um, If there is anything to do with reproductive organs, bladder, bowel, uterus, um, it's good to have a pelvic floor check with a pelvic floor physiotherapist. And I can give you a couple of links of how to find one as well. Um, And, the other thing that they can that people can do is have their regime ready to start after. Now there are some great books. I'll give you another link of a, a book written a small book written by a, um, a physiotherapist, um, experienced physiotherapist about recovery from gynecological surgery and everything you need to know. That's some um, highly recommended. Um, and in terms of the Stuff to do with scar and visceral work, though, I think that's what people don't get information on. So, you know, um, classically, we would not do visceral work until six weeks post-surgery. We'll definitely do scar work before then. And so I always encourage people to come in as early as they feel they can happily travel without aggravating symptoms. They obviously can't drive initially, so someone else would have to drive them. But there is some great preventative scar work that can be done. And as a little shortcut to that, you know, check out my blog because I blog on that sort of thing. I feel it's so important for people to know about addressing their um, scar early. We we know that, you know, your scar by six weeks, you've got 75% of your tensile strength by 12 weeks, you've got 95%. What you hear about, you hear those those figures in relation to safety because people don't want you lifting before, you know, ideally the the, the three-month point. And that's great because thinking about the integrity of the tissue and not, uh, you know, um, tearing something or or aggravating something. But what we don't hear about is the mobility side of things and that you can't just be immobile for those first six weeks before you finally venture out for a short walk. There's some um, very gentle, gradual stretching that should be done. And probably the easiest thing I can um, describe um, over audio is breathing exercises. You know, breathing exercises are always an advantage. Um, They're, you know, not going to strain the scar, but they will allow a little bit of movement. And general gentle movements, gentle rotations of the trunk, twisting your trunk from side to side, sitting tall, then slumping again, sitting tall and slumping, just enough to get a little gentle pull on the um, scar, um, gradually raising your arms up over your head and down. If you move very slowly and with um, awareness, it's very unlikely that you'll you'll do damage, but do consult your health professional. Um, The movement is really underestimated. I see way too many people at the sort of 10, 12 week point post-surgery Whose scars have tightened up really bad, and while there's always work we can do, it's most mobile in that for those first twelve weeks, so we need to take advantage of that. It's interesting, um, Rebecca, that you mentioned your concern about how you know the the aesthetic component. How will the scar look? That's you know that's so natural to be concerned about that, but the 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 um, the relevance of that as well is the aesthetics of the scar actually. do link with its function. So, you know, there, if the scar is very, very tight and bound down and obvious, you know, you'll often get some skin effects. People tell me about their overhang that they're concerned about and things. That's the sign of an adhered scar. That's a bound down scar that that's more, more likely going to affect your function. So, um, playing with the scar and uh, preventing it from getting adhered is a really important part of that recovery post-surgery.
0: And is there a point of no return? I'm thinking about my own scars, which were created in me by surgeons several years ago, some of them. Um and, and I'm sure for some of my listeners, they're thinking, gosh, I had that surgery 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, can you still work on those adhesions and those scar tissues um, many years down the absolutely. road?
1: Absolutely. absolutely. It's never too late. i always tell people, you know, this is living tissue. It's living, regenerating tissue while it might be, you know, very tight if it's been many years and it may even not have as good circulation as it did, it, you know, it, 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 um, it's it's not as vibrant as it was that's the great thing about the human body you know and manual work is you can you can um bring that circulation back um you may it may be more uncomfortable because the scar tissue is tighter and so that often links with it being more uncomfortable when we do manual work but again we just go at you know at at your pace um, sometimes you actually get skin responses. It's not, not, uh, uncommon for me as I'm doing visceral work or connective tissue work. I have to keep a really close, close eye on the skin because if the, t- if the scars are very old, um, then the tissue is more vulnerable. It's a little bit more fragile and you can get little tiny grazes when you get, um, visceral work done. Now that's, that's no no big deal. You know, we stop ideally before we see that or as soon as we do, but it does dictate the pace at which you can progress through treatment. And just on that, I should mention, you know, that the um, possible risks of visceral work, you know, it's important to be aware of that and make sure that when you're working with somebody that you're using your own gut instinct on on how you're feeling about things. Uh, You know, we all know people who've been to physios or other practitioners and been battered black and blue have all these bruises to show for it. That should never ever happen with visceral work or connective tissue work. So um, something to keep in mind is that if you have a certain type of sensitivity of your nervous system that has developed, visceral work can actually aggravate your pain. And that's why I do such a minimal amount on the first session, which of course is tricky for the traveling people. Um, and I know that, that the Werns have a, a wonderful, wonderfully successful approach, and they have a lot of traveling people, and they do it very, very intensively um, for several hours a day, maybe for five days at a time. It obviously, works for the most of the time. There is the odd situation where you have somebody who demonstrates signs of what's called central sensitization, where the nervous system has. Rewired itself and has learned that the world is too dangerous, and um, therefore lowers its threshold to giving you warning signals. And so, we can assess that we can we evaluate that. So I can generally predict that with people predict uh, their response, but um, it does mean that they need to progress with care. And you know, at the SIBO symposium in, in Melbourne, I think it might have been Melbourne last year. Uh, I had someone come up to me in the break and tell me about how they have SIBO and they have history of you know surgery and they have adhesions, and that they went to see a visceral practitioner and they had an aggravation, and when they described to me what was done, there was just way too much work done in the session when the person clearly had pain. And I think we do need to use respect that and use that as a warning signal a little bit. Um, So, you know, some, some discomfort is okay if the person is okay with that, but we're not, um, it's not a case of more is better. And I do have to explain that sometimes to people who are, who are traveling or just who are really keen to get it sorted. And they'll say, you can go harder, you know, you can go harder. And, And I'll say, I, Thank you, but I don't – it's actually maybe counterproductive to go harder. I can feel the resistance. I'm waiting for your tissue to tell me that we can, you know, persist um, and that, you know, there is more danger of aggravation if we um, go too hard too soon.
0: I think that's really great advice and I think of my own experience with with a variety of practitioners over the years and many of them I think are sadists and they love (laughs) – creating like seeing how far they can push you and so when you do have an experience with a practitioner where they're doing something much lighter uh, I have a gorgeous myotherapist that's working with me to help me with my back because I have recently discovered I have a disc issue which was causing a lot of um, inflammation and pain and I when I first started seeing her I would say you can go harder you know I can tolerate more and she said exactly what you've said no I'm listening to you what your muscles and your Mm -hmm. tissue is telling me, and we don't have to create more pain. You're highly inflamed and you're very sensitive to pain at the moment. So, Alyssa, I really think that's great advice that you've given the Mm -hmm. listeners. Less sometimes is more. (laughs) And I think the
1: point about inflammation is important because they may either have a condition where there is known inflammation as part of that, such as endometriosis, or if the tissue, you know, if the tissue restrictions have been there for a long time, we are actually – you know, and I think the worms covered this, well, we are creating inflammation to allow that tissue to renew. So, you know, we, we believe that we are breaking down collagen fibers, you know, there is some, some natural inflammation and healing that needs to take place with that. And we need to give the body, you know, the, the time it needs for that.
0: Is there, my final question um, today is, and there may not be an answer to this, but is there an average length of time at, that you see with your patients that it can take for them to, uh, for you to successfully treat or help them recover mm-hmm. from these types of um, restrictions?
1: I wish I could answer that question, and I think the difficulty is with using so many modalities together. It's kind of not like a a research setting, and I hope there will be more research. I think that the worms have done brilliantly with that in terms of guidelines in in their published research, but it does vary wildly. And you know, I had someone recently who had a history of endometriosis, uh, surgical um, hysterectomy. Um, had had breast cancer, so had had you know uh, been through menopause, all these different factors. And since she'd had the hysterectomy, she had um, constipation, so she'd never had that issue before. And so we did an an initial session of visceral, which is for me, it's always a a more conservative, um, less is more sort of situation. And I saw her again in a month, and she'd gone from going five to seven days between bowel motions to almost going every single day since I've seen her. And I've seen her a couple more times since. And that has, uh, we've repeated the visceral work or progressed along the path. And it's really persisting. So that that's that's a striking result. And it's it's more rare, that's for sure. You don't get that every time. But I, what I tell people is, especially when it's a, a surgical history, so it's a known you know, we know there's adhesions and we strongly suspect from their symptoms that adhesions are contributing. We will get, if we're going to get a response, a clear response, we'll get it within four sessions. If we don't get it in those four sessions, I usually think I'm barking up the wrong tree. Um, we either change approach, you know, systemic approach, nutritional medicine, uh, or, or, um, uh, brain retraining type of approach, which is actually always important to include as a adjunct. Um, and I know we're not talking about that today, but I have an ebook related to that on, on my website because it's such a critical part not to gloss over. Sometimes we think, oh, because there's adhesions that must be causing my pain. But pain is a complex you know, thing and the systems that perpetuate it are very, very involved. Um, So, um, yes, we we may need to increase the emphasis on that in certain situations. But I actually find that people who have strong history of surgical, um, you know, of of adhesions, things, surgery that's promoting um, problems with adhesions, they're probably the most predictable predictable response. Um, And so they will get response, certainly within two to four sessions, Um, and then it depends how much work there is to do. Extreme example, I have somebody who's comes in for monthly treatment and has for many years now, you know, and she's had, I think, 13 or 14 surgical procedures. Most people, um, most people, it's it's not like that. So I might see them. Um, yeah, again, it really, it really depends. Um, I don't tend to do the intensive treatment as, as, as much as the worms do, although I will do that if people travel. Um, but I, I guess I'm seeing people over six to 12 months um, maybe maybe monthly.
0: Mm, yeah, it's 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 fascinating, and I've learned so much chatting to you today, Alyssa. And I'm sure that my listeners have as well. And as you can tell, probably I'm you know it's my thing that I'm just so interested in at the moment is adhesions and, and tissue yeah. restrictions. So, Alyssa Tate, thank you so much for coming onto the Healthy Gut Podcast today. Um, I know that we're going to share some wonderful resources that you've mentioned in the show notes. But if people would like to reach out and connect with you um what's the best way for them to make contact with you?
1: So they can do that on um Twitter at, at it's at elicitate one. That's um A-L-Y-S-S-A-T-A-I-T number one. Um the my website, which I you'll probably may include a, a link to, um, and uh that's um a good way. there is a, um, a a form on that site for submitting questions and those kinds of things, and hopefully you'll find it a helpful resource with the with the blog as well. Um, and my practice page on Facebook is Alyssa Tate equilibria e q u i l i b r i a. so commenting on anything I post there is the the quickest way to get a response from me. I um, still tend to forget to check specific messages that have been sent, so please. Um, comment and give me feedback on what I'm sharing. I do share a lot to do with um, pelvic pain, endometriosis in particular, and anything I can find on visceral work. There's some great, uh, um, uh, you know, visuals on there that I think um, people will find exciting. We haven't gotten to talk the specifics, but um, there is a great little thing on the um, the uh, the mesentery of the intestine, the mesenteric root that I hope that you'll um, find. As exciting as I do.
0: <laughs> I'm sure people will. <laughs> and if, if anyone's listening that isn't based here in Australia and is wondering how they can go about finding someone that understands visceral manipulation, is there a particular qualification? Um, I know that you talked about the Boral Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, are there places that people can go and they can look for someone locally to them?
1: Yes. Yes, you can. Um, It's called the International Alliance of Healthcare practitioners, I think, it used to be educators. But even if you search educators, it it will come up, it's um, the website will come up and it's a find a practitioner function. And you'll be able to look for people who've done visceral manipulation via the codes, VM1, VM2, VM3, VM4. Um, VM3 is pelvis, VM1 and 2 are abdomen. So those are probably the ones most relevant to people listening. Um, Of course, everybody works differently too. So some visceral work can be very, very light. And some visceral practitioners don't, um, go as much for adhesions. Sometimes adhesions need a little bit of stronger work. So looking for people who have uh, training in myofascial release and also looking for your national physical therapy or physiotherapy uh, association. The um, Funnily enough, the women's health group of that is usually where you will um, get your links to this because we all practice differently and some don't do anything like this. But generally, if you inquire along those lines, you will find someone who does. Um, Also, just connect with me on social media. I have wide networks internationally with other practitioners who do the same thing. And we're always posting stuff. Anyone know someone in, you know, um, Orlando, you know, who who does whatever. So uh, yeah, you should be able to track someone down.
0: That's wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I could talk all day, as you can probably tell, and I appreciate the, the time. So thank you. My pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Elicitate. Tate. If you would like to get the show notes or any of the links mentioned in today's episode, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash vm. And that stands for visceral manipulation. So it's just thehealthygut.co forward slash vm. I love hearing your feedback. So don't forget to leave a rating and review in iTunes or the app you use to listen to this podcast. And if this has been of benefit to you, don't forget to share it with your friends who may also find it really helpful, particularly those people that have had any form of abdominal surgery. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. Just look for us under The Healthy Gut. And as I mentioned at the beginning of today's show, I have got a really exciting tour to the US coming up in the next couple of weeks and I would love to see you there. Some of the types of events that I'll be holding are live podcast recordings, cooking demonstrations, workshops, live free meetups. Uh, There's a whole bunch of things. That you'll be able to attend. If you would like to know more about the events or where I'll be touring, or perhaps you might have a suggestion that you'd like me to come to your city and do an event with you, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash event and you can pop your details down. If you'd like to reach out to me and suggest a venue or a location for an event, simply drop me an email at rebecca at thehealthygut.com. Coming up on next week's show, I'm joined by Heather Jacobson. We talk all about her personal experience going gluten-free and dealing with a long-term bout of food intolerances and chronic illness. So it's a great episode with Heather Jacobson coming up next week. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, All you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening.